listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. In the book of Acts, um, it's the story of God. It is, is God doing what He is doing through His people. And we see different people. Primarily, the Apostle Peter is Acts 1-12. to Paul picks up in Acts chapter 13 and go all, all, goes all the way through to the end. But as we look in the early portions of the book of Acts, we see uh, Peter preaching this sermon. We see the church kind of forming and gathering and some beautiful things happening there. And then all of a sudden... Problems erupt in the church. There's lying and there's stealing and there's division and some folks are getting fed and some folks aren't getting fed and and they decide to appoint uh, these leaders, elders, deacons, whatever you want to call them. I don't want to start an argument by calling them something that you may disagree with this morning. It was just a group of guys that were supposed to take care of the practical needs of people there in the body because there was a division. Some were saying we're not being served, others are being served. That's Acts chapter 6. There was a guy there in Acts chapter 6 who was one of these leaders. His name was Philip. When we move from Acts chapter 6, remember the name Philip, we move to Acts uh, chapter 6, we also pick up with this guy named Stephen. And, and some interesting things about Stephen. Stephen is a servant. Stephen also is a proclaimer. And Stephen goes and decides he wants to proclaim uh, the gospel, but he wants to attach it historically to everything in the Old Testament. And if you read uh, Stephen's proclamation you'll be amazed at his understanding of Old Testament history and the Old Testament theology that he shares. But he's sharing it. The Pharisees get incensed because they can't exegetically respond to it. They can't theologically respond to it. They can't rationally respond to it. Stephen is backed into a corner, or the Pharisees are backed into a corner. So the only thing that they can do is take up some stones and and just kill it. So we, we move from Stephen, and now we see in Acts chapter uh, uh, Acts chapter 8, the beginning of, of Acts chapter 8, we see uh, the, the Apostle Paul. He's not the Apostle Paul, he's Saul there. So we see Philip beginning, then we see Stephen, and then we see Paul come on the scene, and we're going to look at, in Acts chapter 8, Philip. But what we see are these real individuals with real lives who are a part of the story of God. And everything in their lives from being a murderer like Saul to Paul is used by God in his larger story as he invites these people into his story. And I want you to remember that because it's no different for us. God is doing what God is doing and God saves us and he draws us into his larger story. But there is this one verse that I want you to remember as a catalyst for uh, our gateway into the story of God, and it's Acts 1.8. And here's what, here's what uh, is stated in Acts 1.8, and you re- will receive power. I'm going to make sure I, I read it right. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, I believe that's true of all of us. I believe Acts 1.8 should be true of all of us. I believe when the Spirit of God comes into us, there is along with 
the Spirit, the power of the Spirit that is real, that is tangible, that is active, that is inside of us, that flows out of us, and it manifests itself in flowing out of us by us going into the world to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So don't miss that because by the time we come to Acts chapter 8, following all of the commotion, a a persecution has started and the church has scattered. And I believe that Acts 8 is the fulfillment of Acts 1-8. You say, what do you mean by that? I believe that the folks just loved the first church at Jerusalem so much that they forgot all about Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. But persecution finally kicked them out of the nest, and now they're going into all the world. And that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 8. If you will, Acts chapter 8, verse 1, this morning. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution. Here's a summary statement that uh, Dr. Luke is giving us against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. (laughs) Interesting, Acts 1-8, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Acts 8, they are scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This guy was very angry. Stephen preached, Stephen backed them into a corner. They didn't have a rational, a theological, and exegetical argument for him. So all they can do now is determine that they're going to destroy all of the Christians. They're going to stop the spread of this thing called the gospel, and that has happened throughout history. So what do we see? The first thing I want you to see in verses 1 to 3 is, um, is this in the text. Number one, there was a suffering that led to scattering. There was a suffering that led... To scattering. And again, this is a fulfillment of, of Acts 1.8. And I believe uh, Jerusalem was the place to be. Jerusalem was the best church. Jerusalem had the best preachers. These guys that were standing up preaching were not somebody that got it all second-handed. They spent three years with Jesus. They were his disciples. They were his students. They were graduates of his seminary. They had a Ph.D. in Jesus. And so when you go to the first church at Jerusalem, the music is the best. The power, the, the sense, the atmosphere, everything that was there was absolutely amazing. Why would anybody want to leave Jerusalem and go to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. You can show up on Sunday and you get T-bone steak every Sunday. You can get the meat of the word every Sunday. You can get the deep stuff every Sunday right here at First Church of Jerusalem. And imagine the apostles. They're like, yeah, you know, I remember when we came upon the maniac of Gadara and I looked into his eyes And it was the scariest thing I ever saw. And I didn't know what was going to happen. But then Jesus, and they recount every move of Jesus, and everything that Jesus said, and every inflection, and everybody's like, wow, wow. I remember when he he got out and he he was just walking on the water. And they they, they walked like Jesus was walking on the water. And everybody's like, wow. I was there when he fed the 5,000. I can tell you what it smelled like. I can tell you what it tasted like. I can tell you what it looked like. I mean, it looked like it just came out of the grease. 
It was so good. It was hot. And the fries and everything. And, and, and everybody loves that because they're right here with the apostles teaching. And they saw Jesus. They saw the paralytic stand up and the blind eyes open and the leper healed. And they're being asked to go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And I just believe they wanted to hang out in Jerusalem at the first church. Let me just say this about verses 1 to 3 and about Acts 1 8. I believe that there is something hardwired into every true believer that says go. I believe there, there should be something hardwired into every one of us. Listen to me, Christians. Listen to me, Christians. There should, I believe that there is something, if, if, if the power of the Spirit comes on us, and we are then by His power compelled to go and be witnesses, if you are a true believer, there is something that is hardwired in you that says, I can't just sit around at first church and get comfortable. But I've got to be going. I've got to be asking the question constantly about my life. Lord, where do you want me? Where can I go and share the gospel? I remember when I was 15 and I got saved. I came to faith. I was born again. Whatever title you want to put on it, I wanted to tell everybody about Jesus. I couldn't drive, but I would find somebody that could. I, I didn't understand the gospel um, well enough to share it in all the different forms there were. I was busy trying to learn the Romans road. But I, I took people with me who did. And I, we would go knock on doors to people we didn't know. You get shot now. You can't do that. Don't try that. But back then, people would answer the door. We'd start talking with them. And we would share the gospel with them. And most of them would run us off and tell us we were too young to be doing that. We should be out playing tennis. Or we, we shouldn't be trying to share the gospel. The, the Bible is a Jewish history book. Why are you trying to share this information? But there was just something in me that, that was impulsive. And compulsive, and there was this longing to see the gospel go forth and transform the lives of others. Of all that we do in this world, of all that we have access to, there is nothing more powerful and exciting and miraculous than seeing lives transformed by the power of the gospel. And these people were scattered and they were sent forth and they went to take the gospel. So there was a suffering that led to a scattering. But then secondly, in verses 4 and 5, there was a scattering that led to uh, sharing. If you will, we'll pick up in verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. That, that, that's just like 1 plus 1 equals 2, right? The, the Spirit comes... The Spirit lives inside of us. His power flows out of us in witnessing. Then, then we are to go into all the world. And when we are to go into all the world or wherever we go, whether you go to, to work or, or to the, the dog park with your dog or wherever it is you go to get your car washed, then, then wherever we go, we scatter and we share. Those who were scattered went out preaching the Word. They were proclaiming Jesus Christ. But in the text, those who were scattered went out preaching the word. The focus now narrows. We're going, we're going from this big picture to this one individual, this man who has a wife, who has four daughters, whose story is kind of touched on all the way through uh, the book of Acts. Verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and 
proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many of them who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. I don't have to add to what I just read except to say this is Philip's life and Philip's story being a part of the larger story of God. And God draws us into his story and all that we are and all that we have to, to use it uh, as a part of his greater story for his glory. God is up to something in your life and my life. He is always up to something in your life and my life if we are his children. And he has shaped the intricate details of your life and the intricate details of my life so that we can be a part of what he's doing. And I would just stop and say that many of us hear the voice of the accuser so often telling us what uh, um, a failure we are. What a failure we are. Keith at camp asked us, he said, take this piece of paper uh, to Fold it in half so you got two pieces of paper instead of one. Okay, does that make sense? You got two, you got two halves of paper. On one of them, draw a picture of what you hear the accuser saying. And on the other side, draw a picture of what you hear the advocate saying. The accuser being Satan, Jesus Christ being our advocate. And so I, I just sat down and I started writing. I didn't draw a picture. I don't draw well. So I just started writing words. First word I wrote was Failure. And I just had a long list. I mean, I could just come word after word after word after word. That was the voice of the accuser. And, and then he says, how could God use you? And then I believe it. And then I started writing down everything the, the advocate said, and we were using Ephesians chapter 1. And the question then becomes, who am I going to give life to? Am I going to give life to the words of the uh, accuser, Satan? Or am I going to give, words, uh, give life to the words of the advocate? Who am I? Am I who Jesus says I am? Or am I who Satan says I am? And, and here's what I want you to say. Why would you say all of that? What's that got to do with the text? It's got nothing and everything to do with the text. Because here is Philip in his life with all of the things that he could put on one side of the sheet of paper that says, this is what the... Uh, accuser says of me, and this is what the advocate says of me. And there are things that are true that the advocate accuses, or the accuser cu accuses us of. There are things that are true, but Jesus knew them before he ever called us to himself, and he's going to use every bit of that in his larger story. And, and we don't ever need to get away from that. When we are scattered and we enter into the world, we should not let the lies of the devil or even the truths that the devil tells us about ourselves control how we enter the world in the story of God for the glory of God. And so there was a scattering that led to a sharing. This is the story of Philip and the story of God. Thirdly, verses 6 to 8, there was a sharing that led to success. I've already read it. Revival broke out in Samaria. There were crowds. There was unity. The people were mesmerized. They were gripped supernaturally. The power of God was crushing the power of darkness. Many were broken. Many were healed. There was great joy in that city. 
The question we need to ask, and I can ask of myself, and maybe you can ask of yourself, is this. So what do we do when we experience ministerial success? What do you do when you're scattered, and you go to a city, and you start preaching, and everybody loves you, and everybody starts getting saved, and everybody starts getting healed? What do you do? The first thing you do is you build a building. You, you create a website. You start a podcast because anybody that sees this kind of success needs to be telling other people about it. You even write a book. You create a network of churches. You have Philip the Evangelist Ministries. You start a Bible school and a seminary, and that would make sense to all of us. And we've seen that happen over and over again. There was a sharing that led to success, but then, then the, the fourth thing I want you to see is, is there was a success that led to significance or we might say insignificance. There, 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 is, there is a success that leads to significance or insignificance. I'm going to skip over the uh, Simon uh, narrative there, um, and I'm going to go to verse 26. Here's Philip in Samaria. He's preaching. He's successful. But notice what happens. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. I want to stop there for a second. From success to significance or insignificance. I think we should stop there and say, wait, wait a minute. Look at what we are doing, God. Look at our success. Look at our stability. I love my income. I like my house and my car and the places that I shop and the places that I can go for health care. And I love the benefits that are provided in my job. And I love my friends. And I love the schools that my kids are a part of. And I love my schedule. And I'm a rock star in the church, Philip would say. I'm batting cleanup. I'm hitting home runs. I'm draining threes. I'm winning championships. We're killing it here in Samaria. My four daughters who are unmarried, according to Acts 21, are on the worship team, and they form a quartet there in the church. So what are you talking about, Willis? Leave Samaria? Maybe for a bigger city. Maybe for a better opportunity. Maybe for more money. Maybe for a better house or a car or a splash pad or the ability to shop at Trader Joe's. I would love that. But the, the desert? The desert? This must be a bad dream. I heard a seminary professor at Southern Seminary preaching one time. And he was preaching on the Valley of Dry Bones. And he preached to the students and he said, certainly... Certainly, uh, there are three categories of students here in this room. He was standing in seminary chapel. He said, one ca category of students is uh, the students that want to go be church planters. He says, that's a noble task. That's a respectable task. That's a popular task. Everybody's into church planting nowadays and have been for the past 25 to 30 years. And so, that's a cool thing to do. You can be a cool guy and be a church planter. I mean, you can, you can, you can grow a beard and have long hair and get tattoos and wear plaid shirts and jeans and flip-flops and be a church planter and and have cool music, and so there's a group of y'all that would say, yes, sir, I'm going to follow Jesus, I'm going to be a church planter. He said, there's another group of you that, uh, I mean, you got, you got every hair in place, you got every stitch starched, you got the perfect family, 
Your wife's, you know, strolling down the road with the baby in the stroller and everything just looks perfect. You're, you know, your wife's a model and, and you've got the perfect beard lines and, and, and everything's just perfect. And, and there's a group of you here that would love to go to First Baptist Church. And that's, that's just for you. There's something about the buildings and the staff and the benefits and the pay. And, and so when you walk into the halls of the seminary and you get your training, that's your goal. Some of you, your goal is, is, is to go to be a church planter. Some of your goal is to go to First Church. But he said, show me that person that's willing to go to the Valley of Dry Bones. Show me that person who's willing to say, I'm not going to Samaria where there's a great revival. Show me that that person that's, that's willing to go to the desert. We don't even think God could take us from a place of great success to lesser status or less success. But this is exactly what happened in the text. Philip went from significance or from success to significance or to most of us it would be in significance. Uh, in 1986, I was, uh, and, and there's, there's more to the story than I'm going to tell, but uh, in 1986, I was a, a minister of music. We didn't have the term worship leader back in 1986. I was uh, at a church uh, running about 600 every week in southeastern North Carolina. Um, our church had led the state of North Carolina in baptisms for two or three years in a row. Uh, as the as the minister of music, I, I I had sixty voices in the choir. Our services were on TV every Sunday, um, but out of nowhere, uh, church came a calling. Now, they came a calling because I realized my limitations musically, and so I said uh, to the pastor, I said, you know, I really would rather preach and be a pastor, and I felt like that was my calling, and so. Uh, a church came a calling, and it was a little church out in the country, a little white church, white building, um, small little auditorium with green velvet covering the pews, and carpet looked like green velvet, and there were 35 or, or maybe 40 people there on a good Sunday, and um, I, I took a 33% cut in pay. I remember the chairman of the committee had a three-by-five card, and he had the, the salary written on it, and he showed it to me. It was in red ink. But I, I had the time of my life because I knew that's where God had led me to go. And, and I, I want to just ask you as you think about what God's will is for your life. As the spirit that we say lives inside of us, what is he leading you to do? Certainly, if he lives in you, he is calling you to be a witness and to proclaim the gospel. What, what is he doing in your life? What is he doing in your story to prepare you to follow him? Do you have some kind of thinking that has disconnected you from what God is doing in your interior world? Or is your passion and your hunger to go and go and go and share the gospel? And, and, and I love this in the text. The, the text says, and he rose and, and went right now. He didn't think anything about it. Everything was going his way in Samaria. And 
the, the Spirit comes and says, hey, I want you to go to a desert place, the angel of the Lord. I want you to go to Gaza. I want you to leave Samaria. I want you to go to Gaza. Here comes the command, and here's what he, here's what he said. He rose and went. He was obedient. He, he didn't say, why, Lord, this doesn't make sense, or Lord, what about this exception or that exception? He rose and went. Whenever I want some quick action with my kids, we learn this phrase in Karamoja. I'll say, Try that sometime when your wife isn't moving fast enough. See what she does. It's magical. It, 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 means, it means right now, right now, you, Yong is you. you right now. And, and so the spirit moved and he got up and he went. He rose and he went straight away. And, and here's the thing. Here's what I want you to think about. He went and did exactly what God led him to do, and he did it without calculation. He did it without calculation. He, 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 he did it without making a list of pros and cons. He, he did it without measuring cost or impact. He, he just rose and, and went. And, and I want to live like that. I want to live an unmeasured life. I want to live an uncalculated life. I want to live an unsafe life where we can't rest until we're fully dependent upon Him. Where we are risking everything for the sake of the gospel. And He rose and He went. And for those of you that are familiar with Acts chapter 8, you know, you know what happened. He... he, he he gets up, he goes in the desert, and he sees a chariot, and there's an Ethiopian, uh, Ethiopian eunuch who has been in Jerusalem worshiping, so he's a proselyte, and he's riding along, and he's reading Isaiah 53. And so Philip, the Spirit, says, go up there, and, 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 and he runs up beside him, and he hears him reading his Isaiah 53, and he starts talking to him because the Spirit of God just opened up this opportunity and Philip jumps up in the chariot and he begins to explain Isaiah 53 to him, takes them straight to the gospel because that's what Isaiah 53 is about. And then all of a sudden, Philip, the, the, the whole, Philip baptizes the guy. The guy gets back on his chariot. He goes back to Ethiopia. But, but tradition tells us that revival broke out in Ethiopia because Philip was willing to leave revival in Samaria and do exactly what God told him to do. Now, Philip didn't know anything about it. The rest of Philip's life, Philip, Philip was probably like, yeah, the weirdest thing happened to me. I, I saw this guy riding along in a chariot. He was the treasurer for the queen of Ethiopia. And I just jumped up in the chariot and I shared the gospel with him. Weirdest thing, as soon as I got through, he took off and he, he's left and I've never heard from him again. Philip didn't know what happened in Ethiopia. Philip did, Philip did not know what the impact of his obedience to God was. He just didn't know that. All he was doing was obeying God. He had the Spirit in him, Acts 1.8. He was scattered and sharing. He was obedient to God, and God was using him to get the gospel exactly where he needed it at that time. And as soon as that was over, I want you to go down to, to uh, verse 40. I'll go to verse 39. And when they came up out of the water, Philip, Philip baptized the guy. Um, uh, this, the sermon's not to try to make some argument on a mode of baptism. Um, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, 
And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Here's a eunuch that's just been transformed by the gospel. And this eunuch had, had Acts 1-8 in him. The spirit was in him. He went to Ethiopia and revival broke out. I've already said that. But Philip found himself in Azotus. And as he passed through, he's like, what in the world am I doing here? He's like, I don't like Azotus. The scenery's terrible. The, 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 the women are ugly. You know, I mean, he's just, he's just like, Azotus is, is an armpit. Why would I want to be in Azotus? He, he didn't worry about any of that. All he recognized in Azotus was that there were people. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. And so we see him going from significance to surrender. I trust God, he said, and I'm going to go wherever he tells me to go, and I'm going to share the gospel everywhere I go until I die. I, I want to just stop. I'm going to just share five thoughts in closing. Um, if you have never believed the gospel, I, I'm here this morning to tell you that, that you are in sin. You've never believed the gospel. You are separated from God. You were created in the image of God. You were created to be in fellowship with God. And there is a longing in your heart that will never be satisfied until you are in fellowship with him. But until you are in fellowship with him, you will believe every lie and try everything to satisfy the longing of your heart that can only be satisfied with him, and it'll never satisfy you. It'll never satisfy you. You are separated from God because of Adam and Eve and their sin and the fall. But God, God's plan from the beginning was to send his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was God of very God, who robed himself in human flesh, who stood before us so that we could see what the Father was like. And God of very God, Jesus Christ, his son, came and was the only sufficient sacrifice to pay for the sin of mankind. And Jesus died and sin's debt was paid. And if we will trust what Christ has done instead of trying to do it ourselves and pay for our sin ourselves, or be as good as we can possibly be so we can get to heaven, if we'll just trust what Jesus Christ Christ has done, then God will take our sin and it will be paid in full in the death of Christ and he will take the righteousness of Jesus Christ and credit it to us and God will fling the doors of heaven open and say, come, come home. Come and fellowship with me. The gospel is the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ and he is alive and he is seated at the right hand of the Father and he's coming again and you're not going to solve all the problems in this world. And you're not going to satisfy anything in your soul apart from Jesus Christ. And if you've never believed the gospel, I would invite you to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning. But if you have believed the gospel, just let me give you five simple thoughts this morning. Uh, number one, the gospel goes forth. You just mark that down. The gospel goes forth. It always has and it always will. That is the divine design of God. And the exclusive means of gospel propulsion is human instrumentality. In other words, the means of spreading the gospel is from one human being to another. That was true 2,000 years ago. That's true in 2023. It is not our creativity or our ingenuity or mass media or social media 
gospel propulsion by divine design moves forth eyeball to eyeball. Somebody speaking the truth of the gospel and it falling on the ears of someone who needs to hear the truth of the gospel and it going into their heart. God's plan is for people who have been transformed by the gospel to go forth and tell everyone around them about Jesus. The gospel goes forth. It changes your heart. And it will change and expand your relationships. And it will change your location. And we as followers of Jesus Christ should order our lives, our schedules, our priorities around the furtherance of the gospel. Let me say that again. We as followers of Jesus Christ, if we believe Acts 1-8 and we have the Spirit in us, we as followers of Jesus Christ should order our lives, our schedules, and our priorities around the furtherance of the gospel. Around releasing the aroma of the good news of the gospel. Uh, around going into darkness with the light of the gospel. This life into the lives of those around us. So the gospel goes forth. It's going forth. Let's just, let's just get on board. Wherever you are. I think it's, it's so cool that we had the privilege of uh, having Jason and Martha here. He, she's my daughter. He's my son-in-law. They were here two years. They went to Fayetteville to a church running about uh, 20 people, predominantly older congregation. And they've gone in and they've just proclaimed good news. We've had people from here to go over there and live permanently to help them and serve with them. And the Lord is working to build a church there in Fayetteville in just two years because the gospel goes forth. It's the power of the gospel. The second thing is this. The gospel has inherent power. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation. How is somebody saved? They're saved by the power of the gospel. We are not doing God's work out of our own energy. When the gospel host is blessed to be the transporter and the proclaimer and the means of gospel expansion, the gospel has inherent power that is independent of the vessel. The power of the gospel is not the messenger or the method, message, excuse me, not the messenger or the method, but the power of the gospel is the gospel. And quite frankly, the weaker the vessel, the more distinct and obvious is the gospel. Don't confuse this. God doesn't need Michael Jordan or Shaquille O'Neal. He doesn't need Elon Musk or Bill Gates. He doesn't need famous, shiny people to share the gospel. He doesn't need people with great personalities or great skills. The weaker the vessel, the more distinct and obvious is the gospel. If you want to be great and popular and successful and famous and respected, don't attach yourself to the gospel. The more selfless and humble and empty and weak, the more powerful and clear is the gospel. We just need to turn it loose. It is the power of God unto salvation. Thirdly, when the gospel gets hold of you, it will take you to a place of irrational decisions, undesirable locations, unexplainable intersections. Life will be spontaneous. It will be impulsive. It will be uncomfortable. It will be unexpected. It will be sacrificial. It will be crazy. You will find yourself in unplanned situations that will not make sense, but will bring peace and joy. You can't graph it. You can't chart it. You can't calculate it. It's just messy. And I go ahead and warn you ahead of time. When the gospel gets a hold of you, it's going to do things in your life. 
that you never thought were going to happen to you and take you to places you never thought you would go. Fourthly, and I've only got five points and I'm almost done. When God invites you, in his, in, when God invites you into his story, we cannot begin to imagine all that he's up to. We cannot begin to imagine all that he's up to. He was up to something before we came along. He will be up to something after we're gone. And he invites us and all that we are into what he is doing while he is here. Our role in his story has impact beyond our understanding or tenure here on this earth. Just ask the Ethiopian eunuch. Faith is me trusting God to use all that is me and my story in his larger story. Faith is me trusting God with me. You hear that? Faith is me trusting God with me. I believe all of Scripture. And can I tell you something? There are people that can quote this through and through that are mad at God right now because God ain't treating them the way they think they ought to be treated. Because God didn't answer a prayer they thought He should have answered. Because God didn't arrange a circumstance in their life and they can know the Bible through and through and I think it's good to know the Bible through and through. This is our authority. This is inerrant. This is inspired. This is infallible. I believe the Bible. I trust the Bible. I trust the Word of God. I've, I've ordered the 64 years of my life around scriptures but the truth of the matter is there are things that swirl through my heart and mind and I wonder God why did that happen God you're sovereign why'd you let that happen hmm can I, can I really trust you with me God why, why are things going so good for those folks and things aren't going good for me do they trust you more than I do why didn't I get an answer to prayer when they did? At the end of the day, though, it's this. Do I believe that God is trustworthy and can I trust Him with me? Can I trust Him with everything that's happened and everything that's going on? And can I rest and say, I don't know what's going on. I know what's happened and I know it was a mess and I wish I could undo it. A ton of stuff I regret. God's sovereign over all of that. I don't know what's going on in my life right now, and I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to put myself in the center of the circle, and I'm, I'm going to say, God, everything in this circle is yours, and I am yours. And I don't know what happened, and I don't know why it happened, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to trust you with me, even when I don't understand. And, and as we enter into the story of God, there are things about us that he has allowed or caused that he intends to use for his glory. And we need to stop being angry and we need to stop being bitter and we need to stop listening to the voice of the accuser and we need to trust God with everything that is in us. So when we enter into his story, we need to trust that he's going to use that to accomplish his purposes in the larger story of God in human history. Then finally, If you find yourself in a place where there's one person in the crowd, preach the gospel. Someone has said, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. 
preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Someone says our church has changed. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. I hope that we care so much about the lost that we'll share the gospel and there'll be new people coming in constantly. I hope that they'll come in and they won't know all of you and they won't know who I am. They'll just know that Jesus saved them. And I hope that our church changes so much that this room is full of people, or whatever room we're in, is <laughs> full of people that don't know each other. The church should constantly be changing if, if we experience the power of God and become witnesses and we proclaim the gospel, the Spirit of God is going to do things that we could never even begin to imagine. And our church every week should be a completely different place. When I, when I leave or when I die or when I retire and you put my picture in the lobby, please don't do that, by the way. It would just be right if we were really the church, if people would walk in and say, who's that? Because I wasn't here when he was here, and I've been saved since he's been gone. And this is a completely different place, and God's moving in this moment. We're not stuck in history. And so I would just, I would just beg of you this morning, if you find yourself in a place where there's one person or there's a crowd, if the Spirit's in you, you shall be witnesses unto me. When the Spirit comes, you're going to be witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. I want you to think Spirit is working. Figure out a way to proclaim good news to those around me. And at the same time, at the same time, this is the desire of my heart. Preach the gospel. Die and be forgotten. There's so many people in ministry and they're worried about their legacy, right? I, I, I do want a legacy of faithfulness. I, I want to finish faithful. I want to be remembered by my, my wife and my... And I, don't, I don't think I'm dying. I may die today before I get done. But I want to be remembered by my wife and by my kids and by my grandkids as, as being faithful, faithful to the Lord. But... If we start worrying about our legacy and how we're remembered, we'll start trying to create something about us that is detached from the joy of being filled with the Spirit and proclaiming the gospel. That's why we must say forget about legacy. Forget about popularity. Forget about if they know you at the convention or the association or wherever it is that you're connected to. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That's what I want to do. If you believe the gospel, that should be what you want to do. If you haven't believed the gospel, would you call on the name of the Lord this morning? Would you believe the gospel? Would you, would you come into the family of God so that you can be a part of the story, the larger story of God in everything in your life will be brought under the umbrella of the story of God, and God will use every bit of it for His honor and for His glory as you share good news.
with other people. That gospel that I proclaim is uh, in the form of these simple elements, bread and juice. The bread represents the body of Christ. The juice represents the blood of Christ. And these two things represent the good news of Jesus Christ. They represent us taking the time to take a minute to remember what He's done for us. And so we we stop, we get still. I think it should be a time where sin is confessed. I think it should be a time where things are made right. And so we take a minute. It's a serious time. Because I'm remembering what Christ has done for me. I'm celebrating what Christ has done for me. I'm remembering that I'm a part of a family as we eat a meal together. And sin in my life impacts everybody in this body. So I want to deal with sin in my life. I want to deal with sin in my relationships. But as we come, we recognize that all of that is dependent upon what Christ has done. And so we celebrate this morning. So I would encourage you before we come this morning to take a minute. um, Search your heart. Ask the Lord to reveal your sin to you and confess your sin. But also take the time to thank Him and and, and say, Lord, please help me. In my mind, in my mind, on this Sunday morning, right here, uh, I guess today's the 29th of July, would you please help me to take this brain that you've given me and let it be intently focused on you and what you've done for me and may my heart be filled with gratitude as I worship you this morning in this time of communion. Father, we ask you to bless us now as we remember you. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of things are going on in the world. A lot of things are going on in our families. I know parents are sitting here with their kids. What a joy. What a challenge. What an opportunity. Lord, I, I pray that you just help us in the depth of our soul this morning to remember you. To remember you. I pray that our hearts would be filled with joy knowing that all that you have done transcends all that is going on in this world and one day we will be with you. But all that you have done permeates everything that has ever happened in our life and transforms not only who we are but all that we've experienced into a glorious part of your story. And I pray today that we'd quit listening to the liar, the thief, the destroyer. I pray that he, he wouldn't hold us down and, and hold our nose in the, the stench of our failure. I pray that you'd set us free this morning and that we would rejoice in a good Father who welcomes us in and looks at our scars and looks at our pain, and looks at our failure. And he says with a smile, I'm going to use that. I'm going to use that for my glory. Come join me in my story. In Jesus' name I pray.